to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Haley, how are you doing? I am doing good. I got my COVID booster yesterday, my Moderna booster yesterday in my left arm and my flu shot in my right arm. And so I feel like I can't really move either of my arms right now, but doing good overall. Does it- does it balance out the the pain in no. each arm? Uh, COVID booster substantially more sore than flu shot. My so my wife had the exact same scenario, and she had the opposite. She said the flu shot shot hurt way more. Oh, interesting. Arm, that arm. Oh, although maybe 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 they told her you know it was flu and it was really COVID. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, my definitely my Moderna arm is, is more sore than my flu arm, but I am super excited that I'm protected as much as I can against all of the infectious respiratory or the most common infectious respiratory diseases circulating right now. Our longtime listeners know we are dedicating the entire second season of this podcast to the new edition of Modern Epidemiology. For those keeping score, that is the fourth edition. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Ellie Mathe to the podcast, have a conversation about case control studies. One of my favorite topics, and yet I think one of the most overrated, well, overrated is the wrong term, but but one that I think we spend a lot of time on uh, in, in EpiMethods for, uh, we, could, we could talk about why that is. But uh, so this is chapter eight in the fourth edition of Modern Epidemiology, if you're reading along at home. Um, at, now, Haley, remind me, when are you going to release the episode where you do the line by line reading of the of the chapter? Oh, you mean the audio book, the audio? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's coming up soon. I need to get permission from the authors before I do the verbatim audio book, because I know people are dying to listen to me uh, narrate this so they can, you know, listen at any point. Like a nice car trip. I really think it would help pass the time. Yeah, great. I, I especially want to hear how you read the figures and tables. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm That's practicing what I'm looking that, forward to. yeah. Yep. I assume you're going to interpretive dance them? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I, I'm actually a terrific dancer. I was thinking maybe about singing a little bit, too. Um, another great skill of mine. So, you know, you'll have to tune in to find out. I suspect you're being sarcastic, yeah. but I don't know for yeah, sure. No, definitely. Okay. Well, anyway, back to our guests. So Ellie is currently a postdoctoral scholar at the University of California, San Francisco, although soon be, she will be transitioning to a faculty position in the Department of Population Health at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine right in Greenwich Village, I believe. Or is that is that not where the, the School of Medicine is? Uh, the School of Medicine is more in Midtown. Oh, well, yeah. see? Shows you, uh, you know, I'm from Boston. We know nothing about New York. Although so. I will say my New York uh, geography at this point is a work in progress. I have to learn. So Anything, any geography has to be easier to figure out than Boston. So anyway, Ellie is a social epidemiologist and her research is twofold. So first in her applied work, she focuses on strengthening the evidence base needed to guide policies to prevent violence and related disparities. And second, in her methodological work, she focuses on developing and disseminating methods to strengthen causal inferences about the health effects of social policies. So welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. We're glad to have you here. So if you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you will know that we always want to start by asking our guests some fun questions so we can get to know them a little bit better. And I want to start with the one that I like to answer, which is, are there any epi-related papers or stats papers for that matter that are to you like classic papers that you either would go back to and read over and over or you feel like you should? I think there's no one paper that I have returned to throughout my entire career in epidemiology, but at any given phase of projects that I'm working on, there's always one or two or three papers that I'm going back to almost every day. And so right now my research focuses on drug and alcohol policies, and there's this one paper about how we code those and how we think about the way that we measure policies that I just like keep leave it on my desk, and that's exactly where I want it. I don't want to move it because I'm going to look at it every day. So that leads me to a follow up question. There's, uh, I guess some people are printing people. So you print off and highlight perhaps excessively as, as some of us do. Others are transitioning to paperless formats, iPads or screen, which would you say? Or are already there. Or, or already there. Which would you say you are? I print the papers that I'm going to be referring to every day and then electronic the ones that I will only need a handful of times. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I still, I, I just can't process that information the same way when it's on a screen. 
I think that is a function of age. So I think us young kids grew up with this technology and so we're just used to it. Whereas you a little bit older than me and you're just not used yeah, to I'm it. Yeah, I'm a fuddy-duddy, right? Yeah, that's, that's sometimes it. Sometimes you just need a break from that screen. If you're going to be reading it for a little while, it's nice to give your eyes a break. Okay, so if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? To enjoy the things that I'm doing on the life stage that I'm at currently and to spend a little bit less time thinking about and planning and working towards the next phase. So to live a little more in the present and a little less in the future. Good advice. advice. Haley, what advice would you give to your younger Uh, self? Put you on the spot there. I think it would be don't sweat the small stuff would be one of them. Mm. And also be kind to everyone because you never know when somebody needs a boost and you never know what's going on in other people's lives. And kindness just wins every time. There's no situation where I find that kindness is not helpful. And so those would be my two pieces of advice. I like that. Mine would be always order dessert. Okay. And last question. If you could have an extra hour of free time every day, how would you use it? Writing more papers. No. (laughs) All right. Probably running. I think that is like my indulgence is going for long runs. And I think normally I keep them short because there's so much to do. And what's your go-to running distance? Whatever I can fit in in 30 minutes. (laughs) But if I could do longer, I would. So 30 minutes. So for me, that would be like half a mile. (laughs) Yeah. Between three and five. Yeah. (laughs) Three and five. That's fantastic. Okay. All right. So we did, in fact, ask you here to talk about case control studies, which, as I sort of said in the, the intro, is one of those topics that I think it's really important that everybody understand how to do them. And they're a fundamental design for epidemiology. And yet part of me wonders whether we spend too much time on case control studies in epi methods courses, given that, you know, a lot of us, I've done one case control study in my entire career. And, you know, it's just not something I spend a lot of time on. But before we get into that, I want to ask you what I think is the most important question when it comes to case control studies, which is, is it spelled with a hyphen or not? Is it case hyphen control or just case control? I am an over hyphenator in general. I really Good. enjoy the hyphen. So I would probably put it in, although I think the term is now established enough that it doesn't need it. But if I had, I prefer it. However, in the book, it's hyphenated in the title of oh, the chapter. Nailed it. Yeah. Okay, so no, let me ask you then, where do you both, this is a question for both of you, Ellie first, where do you fall on the semicolon? Love it. Love it. Oh, All the time. Love the semicolon. It. Love it. Hate the semicolon. Also really like the dash, you know, like the, the sidebar. The M dash? The big one, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that we can be friends anymore because the semicolon is when you have two sentences and you connect them with the semicolon. Why not just leave them as two sentences? Let them be their own people or words. Because it makes it clear that they're connected in a way, that the second one is following on the thought of the third, first, not a separate point. Yeah, agreed. And it, it makes your writing smoother sometimes, I think. If you are you have two ideas that are so perfectly linked, to have them in two sentences, it makes it kind of choppy. So I'm team semicolon all the way. I feel like I say this a lot, but I'm really worried about the direction that this podcast is about to go. <laughs> given this start, but we'll we'll soldier on. We're going to make this work one way or the other. I, I wanted this to start off talking about what is sometimes referred to as trohawk logic, which I know is, so Haley and I often talk about like how we were raised as epidemiologists. It's not, it's, it's clearly, it's not a term that you were raised with, but trohawk, I, I don't remember who first coined the term. I know it was in, in relation to Mietnin. And it's the idea that when case control studies were originally designed, people thought of case control studies as cohort studies done backwards hence trohawk is cohort spelled backwards and so the Uh, idea okay i get it now Yes. So the idea being that when people first conceived of case control studies, they said, okay, case control study is a a cohort study done backwards. Therefore, when we do a cohort study, we break people into exposed and unexposed. So if we're going to do a a case control study, we're going to break people into diseased and non-diseased or those with the outcome and those without the outcome, which is not actually correct, even though it is the way that some people do conduct case control studies. We can kind of get into that later on. But does that formulation ring true, even if you've not 
really heard that terminology before. I could see how it's useful for someone just entering the topic to think about how cohort studies were starting at the beginning and measuring something and moving forward. And for case control studies, you might be starting at the end with some outcome and reconstructing something going backwards. Now that we know much more about case control studies and all these different sampling designs, it's much more nuanced than that. And you're not always starting at the end and going forward. But I think for someone who's brand new to the topic, it might be a useful way to think about it. I think about it more like there's a phenomenon happening in the world. There are exposures affecting outcomes and there's this window and then there's different ways of accessing the window and sampling information from that window. And it can be at the beginning or at the end or in the middle. And you can have random samples that are pieces of that story or full pieces of the story. And so it's all different ways of taking pieces out of the window and measuring from it. Yeah. So to me, this is why I think the case control study is so brilliant and why I think it's so important for people to understand, even if you're not going to spend your career doing them is, you know, the way it was described to me is a case control study is not a cohort study done backwards. A case control study is a cohort study done efficiently. And so you take the same population that you were going to study in your cohort study, you harvest, and I'm not sure I like the word harvest, but that's the word that was used, all of the cases. And then you just take a, a sampling of the base to tell you about that exposure distribution. Given that is what you're doing, it seems so interesting to me that case control studies were developed before people seem to have had a really good handle on what they were actually doing. They just sort of, as you say, did a, a cohort study backwards. And so it's almost in some ways amazing that case control studies ever came to be, given there was no clear understanding in the beginning of what they were actually designed to do. And how would you characterize what they were designed to do at the time that they were first designed? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm speaking a little bit out of turn here. I don't really know the history well enough to say that nobody knew what they were doing. But in terms of certainly the way that case control studies were conceptualized when I learned about them in my intro to Epi, I would say people were thinking that what they were doing was making a backward looking comparison of exposure distributions amongst those who had the event and those who didn't and trying to then say something about risk and increased risk, I should say, or decreased risk in that population. But there was always kind of a sense of we're not doing exactly what we're doing in the, in the cohort study. We're just sort of trying to get close to it. So it, just, presented- like, it wasn't until later that we really did out the math on like pseudo risks and pseudo rates. And we're like, wow, this is great. Actually, we can estimate the instance density ratio. Yeah. And I have to say, I don't know for sure that that's true. It is entirely possible to me that when the case control study was invented, they worked out the math and just nobody paid attention. But it definitely feels that way. It definitely feels like the case control study gets gets, gets going. People start using it. Nobody knows exactly what they're doing. And then later on, someone says, hey, wait a minute, we're actually doing something different here. And you can show how it relates to the cohort study. I don't know. So given that, and if we were to sort of think about the case control study as being a different way of doing a cohort study, an efficient way of doing a cohort study, uh, case control studies do have this reputation of being less valid than cohort studies. Do you think that is, A, do you think that is the perception, but B, do you think that is the reality? I think it's definitely the perception. I think it doesn't have to be the reality at all. I think there are a lot of well-done case control studies and cohort studies that could be less valid. So I think, you know, to the extent that it's just a different sampling of the controls, either one could be equally valid. My feeling is that in the way that we teach epidemiologic methods is we have, you know, some idea, maybe it's well thought out, maybe it isn't, about how to teach concepts that we think are complicated, like the case control study. So we teach them in a certain way, even though we know maybe, you know, we're not doing things perfectly. And then as you develop into your, you know, intermediate and maybe even your advanced courses, then we start to tell you actually, you know, here's the right way to do things. And here's why it doesn't really make sense to say that case control studies are inherently less valid than than cohort studies or randomized trials. And, oh, yeah, you know, people talk about this study design hierarchy and it's bogus. And and I challenge that a little bit because I understand where they're coming from when people say, you know, that you can have a a case control study that is more likely to produce valid results than a a cohort study. But it does seem to me in general, it's still fair to say that if you just pick a random cohort study and a random case control study, the case control study is is likely to suffer from more sources of bias than the same study if it had been done as a cohort study. And I, I don't know if, what your reaction to that is. Seems like it would totally depend on how the cohort study was done. 
the analogous cohort study because there would have been a number of design choices that would have had to be made for the cohort study as well. There's nothing inherent to choosing to do a case control study or a cohort study that makes one inherently stronger of a design than the other, but you could do a study where you took some sort of systematic random sample of cohort studies and case control studies in the literature and high impact or well-regarded journals and then assess different sources of likely bias in them. And then you could, then we could actually determine empirically whether there is systematically more potential sources of bias in some of these studies in case control or cohort studies. That would be interesting to do. It would be super interesting, although it would be subjective, right? In the sense that you'd have to subjectively determine whether or not, you know, one was more biased than the other. Unless you could do a randomized trial benchmark, if you could have a set of studies that have a randomized trial benchmark, but... So true, though even there, it strikes me that randomized trials, even perfectly done randomized trials and perfectly done observational equivalents don't always come to the to the same answers because they're not exactly always asking the exact same question. And more importantly, the populations are often slightly different enough such that the average effects differ across these different studies. But I take your point. Completely so, agree. So it seems like what you're saying is, and I would agree, that there's no inherent reason why a case control study should be more bias than a cohort study. But do you think in practical terms in the literature that you find there is more bias in case control studies than in cohort studies? I'm not sure. And, you know, and I think it would depend on whether we're talking about the published literature, too, because that would also likely be subject to some forms of publication bias. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I'd want to look at it. I'd want to look at it systematically and empirically. All right, we will have to have you back for part two of this podcast when you've read the entire literature and can tell us. <laughs> I feel like Matt in um, asking that question, you wanted a particular answer to come out. Do you have an answer yes, to that question? That was that was a bit of a leading question that I don't think you were perfectly satisfied with Ellie's answer. So why don't you answer that question for us? Yeah, I guess my view would be that a case control study is, while not inherently more biased, that they suffer in reality from more biases. Because if I can conceptualize the cohort study that I would have done, I do the case control variant, but I can conceptualize the cohort study that I would have done that underlies that, then it's the exact same cohort really. And so if I could identify the full cohort, then the main additional source of bias is the challenges in selecting a control population that effectively summarizes the distribution of the exposure in the study base. If I'm doing a nested case control study, then I would say probably there's there's very little risk to getting the exposure distribution wrong. But if I'm doing a case control study where the base is not well identified, you know, it seems to me then I would be better off doing a cohort study and if I was only focused on minimizing bias. You know, I guess it depends on which kinds of bias you're most concerned about. When I teach about case control studies, one of the issues that we always talk about is recall bias. In in traditional case control studies, you should always be concerned about recall bias. And I think actually, again, in the chapter, I think they make a, a pretty nice argument for the fact that recall bias, or I guess we call it misclassification or, or information bias, etc. This type of bias can, can affect a cohort study in much the same way. And so you're trading off one type of bias might be compared to another type of bias. I think you raise a really good point there, Haley, but just because you can have the same bias in both studies doesn't mean that the case control study isn't more vulnerable to additional sources of bias. In the example you gave, I would agree. You can have recall bias or you can not have recall bias in a case control study and in the cohort study. But what would be an example of a case where you'd have recall bias in the cohort study, but you wouldn't have it in the case control study? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't I don't think I have an answer on the spot. Yeah, and I'm not saying there's no answer to that question. I'm just saying it seems to me if we're thinking of the case control study as being nested within a cohort study that I could have done the cohort study on, then the main difference is just how I'm doing the sampling. And therefore, I'm just sort of adding on an additional potential source of bias. Ellie, you seem skeptical of that. Yeah, because I think there, I think an implicit assumption that you're making is that the way that the measurements are being done in the cohort and the case control study are exactly the same. And I don't I think that's ne- necessarily true. So you can have a cohort study that is periodically asking people to recall their exposures, and you can have a case control study that is linking in some place-based objective measure of exposure, for example. And so if that's the case, that would be a situation where you might have recall bias in the cohort study, but not in the case control study. And there, and there, I would totally agree with you. So it's certainly, and that is why I would agree. I mean, you could 
could design a cohort study to answer the same question that has more bias than the equivalent case control variant. I'm saying that if we're, if we're talking about essentially the same study, but all we're doing is adding on how we sample the information from the base, then you know it's it's n plus one biases. But I I, I take your point. We, if it's a trade off in resources, then maybe we do the case control version to save money so that we can get a better estimate to measure the exposure. So yeah, that's a really good point, and I I revised my former statement. Uh, Matt, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it played out in practice, is that in practice, cohort studies end up being slightly stronger than case control studies. But I think part of the point is we don't really know. We don't. Not all biases are created equal. And so it's a hard question to answer universally. Yeah, it's a a really interesting point, actually, because the other thing that you never know is if you're trading off biases, which one is worse? You know, is it the potential selection bias that comes in the the sampling of the controls or is it the misclassification? And that's uh, probably a uh, it's going to depend on the, the study and the measure and all of those things. So it's a good point. So I, I'm going to take back my my statement. Okay, so switching gears just a little bit. Um, switching gears just a little bit. I always wonder whether we don't use the case control study design enough because doing a case control study where all you have is access to the cases and you have to figure out the underlying population seems to me that could be a pretty daunting task for somebody who is concerned about getting valid results. And I get that. But I think often we have cohorts where we could nest a case control study within it. And that would allow us to save a lot of time and and money because we could choose to identify some exposure measure that we, you know, we spend our money on to try and get a good measure of the exposure. We already have the cases from the underlying cohort. And yet we don't think to identify a cohort that already exists that we might be able to nest our case control study in, or maybe we just don't have access to it. But it does seem to me if we were all thinking of epidemiologic resources as shared resources, that that anybody who has a a cohort is building that cohort both for questions they want to answer, but also for the the larger scientific good, that we might be able to nest a lot more case control studies in well-defined cohorts that would get around the validity problems, but also save us a lot of of time and money. Any reaction to that as to whether that's a, a feasible approach, something we could or should be doing? Yeah, I guess my thought is that if there is a cohort study that is well positioned to answer the research question you're interested in, and there's a way to nest a case control study in that, that would yield efficiency gains and time and money and whatever else and would deliver equally valid effect estimates, then why not do that and be more efficient? I think of case control studies also as being a necessity when there's no other option, when there isn't a naturally existing cohort study that is well positioned to answer your research question and it already has the exposures or outcomes that you're interested in. A lot of my own case control studies were motivated by the fact that there was no cohort that measured those things or no naturally positioned cohort that covered the geographies that I needed or measured the outcomes I was interested in. And so I I think for all those types of important research questions where there isn't an existing cohort, which you could do as a cohort study or as a case control study, case control studies might be the only option. I do agree with that. And often when people, I think, think about case control studies, they think about cases where you identify the cases first. So there's some kind of a a registry or a way that we can identify the cases. And then we're looking for a a control population that we can use to probe the exposure distribution. Maybe that's the reason why, you know, we don't use it even more than we do. I I don't mean to imply that it's not a well-used design. I just mean to use it even more than we do. And, and, And that could be the reason. But obviously then if you're in the situation where you have the cases, but not the well-defined study base, then you're, I think, in the area where people get more concerned about the risk for bias because you don't really have a well-defined base. So you sound like you're pretty worried about that bias. I, I there's I, a lot of skepticism in your voice around that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a that's probably says more about me than anything else. I am a, a natural-born worrier, so there is a a potential source of bias that could exist. It's going to exist. I think if you could rank all the people in terms of how much worry they have about bias and which epidemiologic methods course they teach, I think there would be a pretty strong trend where that like the the peak warriors are also the advanced epi methods people because I would characterize myself that way too. (laughs) We need to do that study. We need to do a survey of people's worrying levels and level of bias paranoia. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And then we can submit this study 
to the BMG Christmas issue. Which is a longtime dream of mine. I tried to get in there. It's hard. It is hard. Even something that, you know, is is, uh, pretty funny. It's hard to get in there. Okay, so my what I want to do is a food frequency questionnaire validated by people's Instagram posts. That's what I want to do. Because <laughs> Instagram seems to be 99% people posting what they ate for lunch. So I want to see if we can use it as a validation protocol for food frequency questionnaires. I'm sure that's being done, uh, by the way. I'm sure nutritional epi folks and, and nutritionists in that research domain are, are working on that. Probably in a non-ironic way. Yes, no, an actual serious validation tool. I want to come back to something Ellie said a little earlier, which is about your work in case control studies. So I think oftentimes we talk about historical examples of case control studies, the typical coffee and pancreatic cancer example where they got the the answer wrong. So can you share with us a little bit of the work that you've done uh, with case control studies? Yeah, absolutely. I did a series of case control studies as part of my doctoral work that were looking at uh, exposure to community violence and risk of self-harm. So the idea being that living in a violent community, being either hearing gunshots or being surrounded by people who might be getting injured or the like can be really stressful experiences and that that can lead to a range of stress-related health outcomes or mental health conditions and suicidality would be one health outcome that might be affected by that. And so trying to understand how the social contextual environment of living in violent communities impacts self-harm injuries and fatal self-harm injuries. So not very well positioned to be studied in existing cohorts. And in terms of exposure to community violence, there's a lot of potential for respondent or same source type of bias where the people that are likely to report living in violent communities are also the people who may have less positive outlooks and report um, experiences of depressive symptoms or self-harm injuries differentially. And so I chose to do a case control study because I had all of the incident cases of self-harm and suicides from hospital records and death records for the entire state of California. And so then I was trying to link that to other more objective measures of exposure to community violence, hospital and death records to measure injuries due to assaults, non-fatal assault injuries, and then homicides. And so then I could link rates of violent injuries in people's communities at the zip code level or the census tract level to the number of self-harm incidents happening in those same communities. And there are a couple of challenging things about that. One was that as I was designing that study, I was really worried about Berkson's bias. I was trying to choose a control outcome that would be the counterpoint to self-harm injuries and suicides and would show up in death or hospital records that wouldn't also be related to community violence. And this is true for lots of social contextual exposures. Mm -hmm. Social epidemiologists Mm -hmm. are plagued by this because the, the exposures that we're interested in affect every health outcome. Right. So as I was trying to figure out what group to use as the controls, I felt the study base was fairly clearly defined as the state of California, people residing in the state of California who would have shown up in California death records or in California hospitals. And and I struggled to find a control condition. And so I sat down one day and I was like, I'm just going to read the ICD. I'm just going to read it from top to bottom. And I'm going to look for conditions that I think I could plausibly say, you know, I don't think this one is going to be strongly affected by community violence but it might have some similar patterns of care seeking, for example. Fortunately, my husband is a doctor, wow. so I could go line by line and say, myocarditis, what, <laughs> how does that happen? Could that be related to community violence? Like, how how would people show up at the hospital with myocarditis? And so we, we were sitting on a plane, like going line by line. <laughs> how long and, did it take um, you to do this? A couple hours. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and I was a doctoral student, so I felt like it was a good use of time, you know? Um, yeah, when are you ever going to read the ICD ever again? No, but I learned a lot, right? So now I know I have that. I can put that on my CV. (laughs) And we did come up with some conditions, I think unintentional types of injuries and other acute surgical conditions like appendicitis or gallstones or kidney stones. But in the end, even those follow a social gradient. And so um, exposure to community violence follows a social gradient. And so in the end, I just decided none of them were good options. And so I used the American Community Survey microdata 
as representative of the entire population of California as my controls. And so I merged the hospital and death data. I harmonized the measures between the two data sources and merged them together and said, okay, here is my cohort or case control experience equivalently. And that is the entire state of California. And I could have constructed this as a cohort study too, but you don't need 5 million controls for each case. So that was the source of my controls for the study. So in the end, you you didn't actually do any sampling for the controls? You used the entire state population? I did end up sampling. So I, I reconstructed the entire state and then I sampled four controls for every case and they were matched on certain strong characteristics. I think it was been a couple of years now, but maybe, you know, age, sex, race, ethnicity, a couple of other potential confounders. So in theory, if you're trying to approximate the risk ratio, then you would include the cases as potential controls. Yeah. So it was actually, it was a dead, the design, once I had reconstructed the whole cohort, the design was density sampling. Density sampling, meaning you sample mm-hmm. them in relation to person time? Yeah. So whenever there was an incident case, I could identify who was in the California population at that moment, who presumably did not die from suicide because they were responding to the American Community Survey and draw from them as the control. So there's an assumption there that that because suicide and self-harm injuries are rare enough that the people who are being captured in the American Community Survey are not simultaneously cases. And that's kind of where I want to go with this, which is that the book talks about, and certainly I learned about the different strategies we have for sampling controls. And when I say that sampling controls, I don't mean in the sense of where do you go and find them, but more in the sense of once you have your underlying cohort well-defined, you know, you can sample from the population at risk at the beginning. You can do the density sampling approach where you're sampling over time. Every time you have an incident case, you sample from everybody who is still at risk, or you, you you can do the cumulative design where you just sample people who don't have the outcome. And they present these three, but my my sense is actually there are other approaches that you can do to approximate other things. I guess my question is, how much do you think these different strategies make a difference in actual real case control studies that people are doing? In other words, at least when I teach case control studies, I teach students that if you want to approximate the risk ratio, then the cumulative design is going to be problematic unless you have a really rare outcome. But most of the time when we're doing case control studies, it's because we have a really rare outcome. So I just always Mm -hmm. wonder whether, obviously it's important for people to understand how to design a case control study correctly, but do we make too much of of an issue over the quote unquote right way to do it when Mm -hmm. probably most of the time, any of these designs is going to come up with a very similar answer? Hmm. Well, I think if you have unbiased estimates of the cumulative incidence ratio, the incidence density ratio, and the odds ratio, they would all be quite similar if the outcome was rare, right? Mm-hmm. I yep. think that's what we believe, you know it to be true mathematically. But that doesn't mean that if you have sampled inappropriately, and in particular, if you've sampled your controls in a way that's related to the exposure, that your incidence density ratio could be very biased, in which case it wouldn't be a good approximation for the unbiased odds ratio or the unbiased cumulative incidence ratio. So I think that the sampling strategy matters a lot in terms of potential bias related to the exposure, right? Well, I guess, I don't know. Does it? Explain to me why. I think, I mean, within a study design. So if you're doing an incidence density sampling approach, you can do that well, or you can do it poorly. And oh, if sure. you do it well, you might get a more bi- a less biased estimate, or you can do it poorly and get a more biased estimate. Sure. That that matters a lot in Absolutely. terms of the amount of bias. But maybe we're talking about two different things. And so I'm saying that that choice of how you sample to make it as unassociated with the exposure as possible and therefore the least bias matters a lot. But I think what you're saying is, does it matter if you suppose you had an unbiased way to estimate either between the cumulative and the incidence density in the case cohort, does it matter if they could all be unbiased? Perhaps not if they were all unbiased, but I guess which one do you think you could do the best for in a given context? I think you probably have to judge which set of assumptions is most plausible in the given context. This is where I I get really thrown with the the case control discussion, right? Because if you do any study design poorly, you are going to get (laughs) a biased result. You are going to get an invalid result. Whether it's a trial, if you totally screw up your randomization, you're screwed. If you do a case control study, terrible.
terribly and you sample your cases and controls poorly, then yeah, you're going to get the wrong answer. And so I think some of this discussion, I, I feel badly for the case control study because all of our discussions are always like, well, yeah, you could do it badly. Yeah, of course you could do it badly, but you could do a really cool job at sampling and do it well and then end up with a very efficient cost saving type of study. So I think some of these, somebody needs to stand up for the case control studies because it's not fair to them. And it's it's clearly, it's going to be Haley. Yeah, that's me. I'm obviously passionate about this topic. No, Haley. I'm a big believer in case control studies too. I think the types of bias that we're talking about doing it poorly or well could happen just as much in a cohort study, right? Absolutely. No, I would agree. So I feel like we've talked about, but haven't really explained that the sampling is the key to getting valid results in the case control study. And as I said, to me, if you've got a nested case control study where you know what the study base is and you're just randomly sampling from it, then you have a very strong case to make. There's no increased bias associated with this design versus the cohort design. But when you have a secondary base where you've got the cases defined first, I think the risk is higher. So just to clarify, can you talk a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about secondary bases versus primary bases and what your options are then for selecting controls in these designs? Totally. So I mean, I think you've alluded to it already, but a primary study base is when you have a clearly defined population or pool of personal time that you're interested in studying. And so then the cases and the controls are clearly defined as the ones that arise from that well-defined population. A secondary study base is when you have a set of cases and you are trying to work backward to determine and define the population from which those cases arose. And so it can be a little fuzzier in terms of defining well, who are those people that would have gone to that particular hospital had they gotten that same condition? And so the study population, the source population from which those cases arose would be a secondary study base. And so the concern is that the latter is harder to identify and define and thus appropriately sample controls from. I think one of the points the book makes is that the distinction between a primary and secondary study base is not very well defined. It gets a little bit fuzzy. My study, for example, I think might be one of those gray areas as where I started with the cases and then worked backwards to define the study population, but the study base is also fairly well defined in a certain way. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a gray area, I think. So it's a spectrum. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Oh, and then your your second question was about different sources yeah. of controls. So in the primary study base, you often will have cohorts or well-defined populations from which you can sample your controls. You would, If it's a cohort study, you would have an enumerated listing of everyone in that study. And then for secondary study bases, there are lots of creative sources of controls that the book lays out nicely, things like matched controls from your neighborhood or friends or other health conditions coming to the same hospital or registry that you're getting your cases from. I appreciated the addition of social media-based controls in Modern Epidemiology Edition 4. I noted that that was new. <laughs> Wackolder published a series of three papers on how you select controls. And in particular, I think it's for secondary study bases. And he kind of goes through a lot of the trade-offs. And that series of three papers was published in 1992. It was a long time ago. Yep. But it was still cited heavily in Modern Epi 4th edition. And in every case control study I've done, I've ha I, those are papers that I print out and refer yep. back to constantly and still use. So those would be great examples of papers that I think r really still hold true and are still really useful and valuable. And referencing. I would totally recommend that series. I, I definitely read that when I was going through my doctoral program and I do think it holds up and you know, there have been some developments in the design, but it holds up really well. When you have a, a secondary study base, one of the things that folks often do is they'll choose more than one control group. So they'll have two options, a group of folks that are hospitalized for a different condition and a neighborhood group or whatever the, the two groups might be. Where do you fall on whether this is a, a valid approach, a good approach? approach to take? Or do you think you should commit and pick the most valid group that you can, put all your eggs in that basket, and just go with the, the one control group you think is most valid? Which of those strategies do you lean towards? The way I was raised, and I think the thing that I believed, <laughs> I believe, is to commit to the one source that you think is the most valid and to put all your eggs in that basket. And the reason for that is that if you have multiple sources of controls and you get different answers, 
answers with each one, then you don't know how to decide usually which one is more correct. And then you just have multiple different answers to your question. And that, that might yield less clarity and more confusion. So it might be more helpful than useful. That's said, if there were ways to anticipate what the likely sources of bias would be and the directions of that bias from each source, for example, using some sort of multivariate quantitative bias analysis, if you could anticipate which direction you think each one is going to be biased, and thus whether they cohere from some form of simulation study, then maybe it might be useful to do both sources and see whether if they are both biased in the directions that you think they're going to be biased, does that actually play out in practice? And if so, then maybe they are actually giving you the same answer in the same direction, just with the addition of their specific biases. Yeah, I was raised in the same way as you. You know, the concerns about multiple control groups and and what you do when you get different answers from those different groups. I do see it quite a bit, actually, in the literature. There's a paper that I use when I'm teaching looking at Zika virus, and it was a case control study, and they have multiple control groups. And I want wonder how much of the literature that we see on this topic is informed by publication bias, because if you have multiple control groups, you might choose the answer that you like the best and move forward with that in your publication. Or I don't know, these are just some of the topics that I think about, because I tend to agree with you that you wouldn't know which answer you want to go with or is more valid if you have multiple groups. Mm-hmm. The other concern is, too, that even if you have multiple control groups and they all give you the same answer, they could all be biased in the same direction. So you could still be totally wrong, right? But hang on, but if you choose two different control groups, and they give you different answers, and you went into this thinking they were both reasonable approaches, by choosing only one, you're just not knowing that there might be a a different answer that, again, you don't know if it's more or less valid. But all, all you're doing is giving yourself more certainty about something that you may not be justified in having that much certainty in. So I'd argue for the having multiple control R's, as long as you thought they were reasonable approaches to the question, that we'd be better off knowing that you got different answers and trying to wrestle with why than simply just not knowing and being totally confident in something that may or may not be right. That's because you're an honest person. And I think that, that, (laughs) sorry for saying it, I think maybe it's a bit of a naive approach because I would imagine that there's the version of p-hacking that goes on. You know, this group is significant. Control hacking? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. This group is significant. That group, oh, the effect estimate crosses the null or didn't work out as we want let's just go with this one. That that would be a mm. concern that I would have with reporting. That's what I meant with the, the publication bias issue because Fair um, enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm mm. now a skeptic of the literature. You know, maybe it depends on how strong you think each control group is. If you think there really is one that is stronger than the others, then you could just go with that one. But if you think there are a couple that are equally valid, but have kind of just different limitations, and you're not sure about how important each of those limitations is, then you can take Matt's approach and couple it with some quantitative bias analysis to see whether they really are coherent with each other. Fair enough. Okay, so the last thing I want to ask you about is matching, because matching is so commonly done in case control studies. And, you know, you mentioned in the study you described that you did match. Would you say, generally speaking, you're a fan of matching in case control studies? I would describe it as a necessity sometimes for precision. So I think the concern if you don't match is that you may end up with confounder strata that have so few exposed or unexposed or so few cases or controls that you can't adequately adjust for some of those confounders. Or if you do, you end up in this super wide confidence interval space. And so I think I view matching as something you want to avoid if you can, but if you need to do it to ensure that you have enough sample size to be able to adequately adjust for the confounders that you think are important, then you should do it. That was a fantastic answer. But can you say more about why you would avoid it if you can? So it induces a selection bias that you then have to correct for. And in simulation work that I have done, it ended up being better not to match and just to use all of the data that you had at your disposal and to weight it more or less depending on how useful it was for a confounder 
boundary adjustment. And so you'd be better off not generating selection bias or convoluting your data if you don't need to and just including all of the data that you can. So is, is the idea that you have to throw out data when you're matching and you can't find matches and therefore you lose precision that way? Or is the idea that when you're matching, you are somehow going to lose statistical precision? Actually, I don't know that the last one would happen. You would gain precision by matching unless you had to throw out subjects, right? You know, it might be helpful to think about it like the survey sampling analog of this, where when we oversample small groups to make sure that we have prevalence estimates for a small subgroup, we increase precision of the estimate for that subgroup, but we increase the design effect for the overall population estimate. And so there's an inherent tension there in terms of gaining precision for a subgroup specific estimate and losing precision for the overall population estimate. And so I wonder if there's some sort of analog in the case control setting as well, where when you sample in certain ways by matching people in each confounder strata, that you're sacrificing precision in, in the form of kind of increasing your design effect or the equivalent. Yeah, I think that there may be something to that. Maybe These are hard questions, Matt, to think through. You're making that, me think really hard for this that, early in the morning. That, the idea here is for people to leave this podcast and never want to come back. <laughs> Wildly confused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned this idea of selection bias. So, you know, when I think about matching in a case control study, you know, we're always taught that when you sample your controls, they need to be sampled independent of the exposure. And yet matching means that we are sampling controls based on a, a variable that we, we believe to be associated with the exposure, because if it wasn't associated with the exposure, it wouldn't be a confounder. So how do you explain to people that idea? Idea that it's okay based on a variable that we know or we believe to be related to the exposure. So I thought this was okay because we know exactly the ways in which we have sampled in relation to the exposure. And because those are measured sampling biases, we can then adjust for them. So as long as we know and can quantify the ways in which we have induced associations, we can adjust them back out again. Yeah, that's certainly the way it was taught to me, that, that essentially what you're doing is you say you are creating selection bias because you're sampling on a, a controls based on a variable that we know is related to the exposure. But as you said earlier, it, it improves the precision. And it's a selection bias that we can remove by adjusting for the variables that we've matched on. So the, the thing that always sort of that sort of blew my mind the first time I learned this was when you match in a case control study, you actually don't remove confounding. The confounding does not go away because you're actually matching on a variable that's creating the selection bias. It's only when you adjust for the matched variables that it goes away. And so when you explain that to people, it's sort of like, okay, wait, you're telling me I have I match at a variable, but then I also have to adjust for it. So what was the mm -hmm. point of the matching? And the point of the matching is improving precision, because as you said, you could end up with really uneven distributions of your exposure and outcome in case control studies because you've got fewer cases and you may have finely divided confounders. So it's a hard concept, I think, for people to wrap their minds around. Mm -hmm. And it's very intuitively different from the type of matching you would do for a cohort study. Yeah. And so I think it, it just takes a bit more mm -hmm. wrapping mm -hmm. your head around. Well, I want to thank you for coming and talking to us about case control studies, something that I, I find fascinating, even if I think we may spend a little too much time talking about, but it's been a it's been a real pleasure to, to chat with you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I feel like I want to talk about why you think we spend too much time about ca on case control studies. So I think that case control studies, we do spend a lot of time on them, right, in the Intermediate Epidemiologic Methods course, but that some of the principles that you're learning by learning about case control studies are widely applicable to epidemiology generally. Having a really good example of the ways in which recall bias can arise in a case control study helps you to understand the ways that biases could arise in all types of studies. The other thing I would say is that I think case control studies are underutilized, yes, and I think we're in a world yeah. where cohort studies, long-term primary data collection efforts are being funded less and less. Yeah. They're going to be less available. They're also not responsive to the types of questions that we have. For example, public health crises arise and we don't have data collected on the outcomes or the exposures that we need in that given moment. And so I think that increasingly case control studies are going to be something that we have to rely on when there's no other option. And, you know, there are more and more sources of data that are events or incidents or cases 
out in the world. And we need to be able to think about how to pair those with reasonable controls or source populations to study things that we couldn't otherwise study. So I think there's a growing need for case control studies. And I think that we need to learn those principles so that we can apply appropriate case control studies in the future. I'm giving you a standing ovation right now in my office alone, because I think that's, that's exactly right. And to add just one additional small point, the type of case control study that you did in your work using these big data sources that we now have, I think a lot of the issue related to control selection, you know, this idea of who is in this community or those issues can be remedied in large part by by the data sources that we now have available to us, which just weren't available, let's say in 1992, when Wachholder published, you know, those papers on case control studies. So I think that we are in an era where we are primed to do more case control studies and better case control studies. As I I feel like I keep saying throughout this episode, case control studies can be done in a completely valid way to give you absolutely valid effect estimates. And so I want to see more of them, not less of them. So Matt, I'm increasing the number of lectures on case control studies in my future courses. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing is, I think there is a lot of room for more innovation in case control studies. It was striking to me, you know, I didn't hold the third edition and the fourth edition next to each other. I would really like to subscribe to the track changes version of my Epi. <laughs> but it does look like not that much has changed. And I think there's a lot of room for innovation in case control studies in the way that we've innovated in other study designs. That can happen and there's opportunity for and we would all benefit from. Okay, so first of all, I just want to absolutely second the idea of a track changes version of modern epidemiology. <laughs> I would buy that so quickly, and then I would pay Haley to read it to me in her <laughs> audiobook. So I agree with everything that you both said, just in the, in the same way that all study design decisions are an exercise in how you use limited resources. All epidemiologic methods teaching is an exercise in limited time that you have to focus on different topics. And there's just so much we need to teach that I just always felt we spent a little too much time on case control studies at the expense of other things. But I am not in any way saying that the points that you all make are not entirely correct. And yes, we should be doing more case control studies. And yes, we learn things from studying case control studies that are applicable to other topics. I just, to me, it's just a, a question of, of balance. Matt, what are you dying to, to cover more of in your- Bias, obviously, courses? bias. You don't, that you don't have time for because of case control studies. Case control studies ruin everything. I don't know the answer to that because it's always a question of I I switch things around because I think something's important and I put it in, but then I'm going to take something out. All that time is fungible, but I feel like at least for our our students, we don't spend a lot of time on bias analysis unless they are going to sign up for an entirely separate course for that, which is great, but it's only a few students. Whereas it would be great to give all students a little bit of an understanding that you can actually do quantitative adjustments for the things in your studies that are not measured confounding. I could come up with a number of different topics like that where I think students don't get very much of because they either have to take a separate course in it, which very few of them will take, or it's just sort of something that we mentioned in passing. I would like students to get more on cognitive biases in interpreting the literature and things like that, which I think don't make it into most courses. So I I, I have a whole list of things we don't teach, but I I wish we could. It's just decisions that we make. And it's all the fault of case control A hundred percent. It's because big case control study has such a stranglehold on on what we teach because they're so powerful. That's that what lobby. it is. The, the case control lobby is so strong. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for coming to talk with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great to talk to you both. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I want to strongly encourage you to become a member. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. Uh, It's one of my favorite podcasts. So if you like this one, we, we think you'll also like that one. And finally, a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. So we appreciate those of you who stuck around to the end. We thank you for listening and look out for our next episode.